go ahead. You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to talk about anything and everything fermented. A little bit of science, a little bit of history, a little few recipes, how-tos, who knows what it'll be. But this is episode 13 with your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. Hi, Brandon. How are you? I'm good. How are you this week? I'm great. Um, What's up with you and your fermentation this week or last week or any week? Fermentation, I have been making a few different things, been working with water kefir again. But uh, one of the things that I don't think I mentioned before. Did you say you've been making things? Yes, I've been making things. (laughs) Yes, I I have been. One thing that I've been experimenting with, though, or not really experimenting, but testing out and using are the flip top glass jars, sometimes referred to as phyto jars. A what jars? Flip top. No, I get that. The second term. Fido. It's the name. It's the it's the brand name. It's got a Broccarillo Fido. Some, I, don't, oh, okay. I don't know. It's uh, I've never heard that Italian or French maker of glass. Okay. Of glass flip top jars. You know, like I grew up with a, the only glass flip top jar that I remember is the cookie jar. So is the mason jar referred to as mason jar because of the maker mason? No, because the maker is ball. That's one brand. I wonder how mason jars... Is that just what they're referred to? That's your assignment for next week. Okay. Actually do some follow-up and figure out what where the, the mason jar comes from, because I don't know. But yes, I'm sure it has a very concise way, and maybe one of our readers will help you out. And, I'm sure uh, internet you know, will work you know. as well. Readers, listeners, I don't know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> um, but I've been using one of those, and I really like it. I've, before this, either been using my crock for making large batches of sauerkraut, or I have been using mason jars for making sauerkraut. Oh, so this is something you're using for sauerkraut? Yes, so far. Well, I wasn't technically using it for sauerkraut. I was using it because I'm experimenting with some different coleslaws uh, recipes, but I'm fermenting the cabbage first. But I didn't chop up any carrots or any other vegetables, so it was just chopped up cabbage. So it was sour cabbages, so sauerkraut. Yes, so it's it was... The same difference as making sauerkraut. The thing I really liked about it is that it was like a a set and forget kind of thing. You know, even the harsh crock, you have to fill with water. You got to do a little bit of work. Not a lot. You fill up that moat so it keeps that airlock going. Yes. Well, I don't know how long this would work long term because I was making a quicker sauerkraut. It was only about two weeks. Quicker for me. I mean, some people like their sauerkraut like two or three days. In mason jars, I'll... Well, again, in mason jars, it's generally slower or a faster process anyway, too, like two to three weeks. No, no. What's but the benefit? What's the benefit of what? Using the flip top. The flip top versus, versus a mason, mason jar? Yeah. Um, well, it, it creates an airlock of sorts because it has the, if you're not familiar with it, it's with the rubber gasket in the flip top clamp down lid. So the lid's on tight, but it's not on too tight that it doesn't, it's not tight enough to hold in all of the gas. It's only tight enough to keep air out. And so by creating the CO2 that the sauerkraut or the cabbage creates, especially in that first few days and week, it just, it releases. I could hear it like fizzing a little bit. I might've put a little bit too much in it. So like, you know, it, it, it does leak a little if the brine starts to go up a little too much, but it doesn't let any oxygen in because I didn't get any mold. I didn't have anything in it after like two and a half, three weeks. 
Okay, but what do you do with mason jars? It's different. With mason jars, you have to open it regularly, make sure everything stays below the brine. Oh, okay. You know, okay, so I did the flip top jar and I had a little mason jar on the inside underneath of that lid pushing down on a cut out round of cabbage so that it held Okay, so held, you kind did of like have the something. stones in a harsh fermenting crock. Okay. It would would do that. But it created there are things I think they're referred to as the the picklet. Um and it's spelled a little different or something like that, their website. They have fermentation things that have little airlocks on them. And I see things go back and forth as to what's better, what's okay, what's healthiest, what provides the best bacteria and different things like that. I'm going more for taste, so I'm not as concerned about those things. If it works, it's good It's good in, in, in my book. Oh, I think so too. Just do use whatever works best. I mean, some people just might like the process of... Yeah, unless some unless somehow I found out that it was like deadly horrible or something like that, sure, then I would I, I just can't find anything that's clear and concise that doesn't also involve people selling something or or you yeah. know, like a, a certain method or, or whatnot. So I can't I can't find any good science on on the matter fully. Um and I would like I I, I, I plan to look into this a little bit more in, in the future. But for now, I'm happy with this flip top jar because again it lets the co2 out it doesn't let any oxygen in so no mold um no need to pop and and burp the mason jars as is what it is with the mason jars opening that every day to allow the the co2 out when you do that i'm also putting or letting oxygen in by burping it even if i do it really quick whereas the flip top jars it, it clamps down it's it's tight it's down and just not tight enough not tight enough that it's going to make the jar explode because that's what can happen with a mason jar. I'm actually going to do a blog post about this soon um, uh, because I have not ever had a mason jar explode. But I have forgotten to burp them regularly enough. Do they just start leaking out? If I don't t- seal them tight enough. That's a good thing. That's a reason why when fermenting in, in mason jars, I don't necessarily seal it completely tight. But I had some kefir. Well, fermenting in mason jars also, I think um, fermenting it with metal just seems, doesn't a metal rust or? Well, the acids do, the lactic acid That's just the thing I don't like about the metal. it. Yeah. And, and that can definitely, that's, that's one of the, the, the nice thing about mason jars is they're so cheap. Well, yeah, but. But people do talk about them potentially exploding. I guess supposedly these. These flip top lids, these Fido jars can also explode. But from, I had a gallon's worth of, like a gallon size, one of these. I mean, I think it's like, maybe it's many like in really is. extreme conditions, like really well, hot. Well, yes, if it was like hot and, it, and it, it grew way too fast, then yes, maybe the, the CO2 build up too fast for it to release. But it's winter time in the Midwest. It went a little bit slower. But it's, with supposedly even that can can burst but so can mason jars i haven't seen one burst but i have had it happen a few times where the lid bursts almost i am no physicist or but you know most things take the the path of least resistance just like back in my coffee days you know with espresso it's like water is going to take the path of least resistance so when you're making espresso it's going if there's any pockets or air things and it's not tamped down correctly or evenly then water is going to sneak through and it's not going to make an even really good shot and it's the same kind of thing with co2 is going to take the path of least resistance so which would a mason, be the lid which would be the lid 
Now, if it's not completely tight, it's just going to like seep out and kind of hear it bubbling or whatnot. But if it's tight, really tight, like I had some kefir that I left next to my wood burning stove and uh, overnight because it didn't seem like it was going for some reason. It was some grains that I'd had in the refrigerator and it, it wasn't really going. And so it just overnight kind of popped the lid is just like expanded up. It just forced it like the, you know, because mason jars, the ball mason jars, they have the insert and then the metal ring. Yeah. The the insert had just gone up and it just like had uh, um, kind of busted, but it was still holding it tight, but it just needed some release of CO2. And I did that and it was okay. It's I'm obviously I won't be using that lid anymore, but so... I think if the glass had, you know, been dropped and maybe wasn't, broken but maybe had a hairline fracture somewhere like that that's those are the kind of things that i think would would break it i'm sure eventually if it built up enough it could burst even a mason jar but and again supposedly it's happened but i have never heard anyone that or read from anyone that has had it directly happen to them it's more of something that's to be of concern but it's not as likely to happen unless there's again path of least resistance hairline fracture something else weakness in the in the glass but the lid is going to extreme conditions that most yeah, again, people if it, don't yes if it built up fast with. yes anyway the point of the story is that you really like your uh those because it's like set it and forget it now they are a lot more expensive or relatively they're 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 rather cheap and it was on <laughs> wait, 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 that one. what the, the flip top jars are rather cheap okay uh relatively cheap compared to some other fermentation vessels like the harsh crock or even a picklet airlock thing but they are much more expensive than mason jars. You know, you can get the half gallon mason jars, you know, for like under $10 for six of those, whereas one of these is about $10 for a gallon um, size. And so they're, and, and smaller ones aren't really much cheaper. Um, and, and some of the other. But they look cool. They look cool. They work really well. And uh, I just, reason why I hadn't tried it before is because I didn't realize that the local um, food co-op here had the jars and before that i like looked on amazon.com and and looked other places and it's not necessarily the cheapest to ship glass different places so it wasn't it it was just going to be a lot more expensive than i would have wanted but i found recently and i can't oh crate and barrel crate and barrel has a good deal on like cheap flip top so if if like if you're a person that's interested in trying flip top jars but you haven't found anywhere local and you don't have a crate and barrel local, um, you know, I think the closest one here is like a couple hours away. So I haven't been there, but, uh, they've got good prices on these things that are really, and they don't almost, have shipping fees. It was on? like a flat a four ninety five, flat oh, four ninety okay. five for as many as you wanted. At least when I was doing like a practice cart, just to see out of curiosity. You did a practice cart. That's awesome. Well, I wanted to see, I mean, I wanted to see if it's like, it was really, if it was four ninety nine, four ninety five per thing, which would seem a little ridiculous, but at the same time, glass is heavy, so I could understand. But it looks like they'll ship any of them. They've got the like the the bale top, the flip top um, glass bottles that you can use for fermenting water kefir and different things like that too. So it's pretty cool. Well, there you have it for uh, some glassware. Yeah. The 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 now the reason why I was doing the stuff with uh, or like taking some kefir out of the refrigerator. Was because I'm sorry. What? I thought we were talking about sauerkraut and the flip top. No, remember we I had talked about the busted lid on the that kefir. I guess yes. Got to keep up. Come on, you can you can do it. 
Go ahead. Um, the kefir, the reason why I was pulling some kefir grains that had been stored in the back of the fridge is because I had killed some kefir grains, or maybe I didn't kill it, but I I maimed it so badly that I don't know if it's it's worth trying to recover. You did what so badly? I hurt my kefir grains. <laughs> didn't you just lecture me on this last episode? You got to keep your things alive. They're like babies. Yeah, it wasn't as much what that happened? I wasn't. I was doing it regularly. I was, you know, giving it fresh milk every day. So what happened? Well, you see, I was experimenting. And by experimenting, I mean being kind of lazy, but also curious. <laughs> Sounds like lazy, but go ahead. You know, I figured, okay, so this kefir used to be made in in animal sacks, like stomachs, animal leathers. You know, this, the, the kefir grains used to be kept in that. And the, the kefir started to form on the on the edges of the these containers. Yes. Back, way back in the day when this probably originated. Those polysaccharide matrices started uh what's the what's the plural of matrix? Mate uh You're asking me. Sorry. You realize that. <laughs> Moving on. Um, <laughs> uh but matrices? They, something yeah, something <laughs> like that. Matrici, matrices. <laughs> Maybe this will be a follow up. Yes. I apologize to everyone that knows that right off the top of their head. I, 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 have I got excuse, it almost, though. but yes. What is your excuse? I'm foreign. Yes. Been been here long enough. You but don't you, have an excuse though. Yes. But I figured since they had been in those things, and I figured they probably didn't wash them that often if it was building a the 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 grains kind of on the edges of the thing. Okay, hurry up. I'm so, curious. So I have not been washing my kefir container. Uh, in between times, which what do you, I don't do you think mean you have in to do every times? time. Explain. As in like the last, oh, 20 days or so, I haven't been like putting in it, the, putting the grains into a fresh oh. or a clean mason jar or something. And it's been building up thickness on the sides a little bit. Um, you are it, lazy. That is a total sign of laziness there. That was not laziness. It was curiosity. <laughs> I really wanted to see. Well, why didn't you have half of them at least going into a new jar so that you don't Ah, because I have kefir grains in the refrigerator. Oh, you had some extra. Oh, well, then that's fine. Yes, I, I had I had some. I And now this brings up something where you'll find different things on the internet. How long can kefir grains stay in the refrigerator? I put them in a little... Wait, I'm sorry. You're... you're maybe I'm just slow. Then drink your kombucha? <laughs> no. So you're talking about the kefir grains. Um Yes. And how you think you had killed them. Yes. But then you just stop. So you think you had killed them. Yes. By doing that. Yes. And then you think you revived them by leaving them out. So did you, when you think you killed them, did you take them out of that jar and put them in a new jar, put new milk in it to see if you can get them back to being alive? Yes. And Okay. And and when I tried to Sometimes do that. Sometimes it's hard to follow. I tried to do that twice. And each time it was still a little funky. I mean, I think it was still drinkable, but it wasn't. It was funky. I don't... How funky? Or what What does that mean? Like cheese it... smell funky, but tastes good or? No, not cheese smell. Like like probably bad, but not quite so That's... bad. That'd be... I'd be curious to try that. I don't think I've ever had bad kefir. Usually. Well, it didn't taste like kefir, so that's why I didn't oh. drink yeah. it. I, like, the but I did I try can... it a little. I mean, I didn't oh, So die. did it taste like milk or just not even like? No, like, you it know... was definitely fermented you Just know went fermentation, the wrong route. like the good side of rancid kind of thing like i mean it's like it's a fine fine line 
I okay, mean, so you just went the wrong route of well, and I and you know I should have taken it as a hint that the you know I did wash the lid regularly because the lid <laughs> wait what the lid doesn't even touch the grains it does because with kefir I shake it up regularly oh, I, I keep it aerating as much as I can um, you know okay that's that taking a step back as well you'll find on the internet some places recommend putting a um, cloth over top of it and or like a coffee filter in a rubber band or a string or something so there's similar to kombucha Mm -hmm. but it doesn't need that and i haven't done that i mean maybe i'm not the expert (laughs) person to talk to since i'm killing grains but it was out of curiosity so how thick was the layer around the jar was it oh like a centimeter or two so i mean it it built up though well not like it was more you know probably more cream it was probably it wasn't the polysaccharide like matrix of kefir it was just that it was just build up of whole milk that you know had curdled some in different time you know i mean it's just but the lid you know i i i washed it and i noticed that it was it was starting to get a little like funky smelling so i was like washing it more regularly but i think it was just probably some kind of infection in in the lid that was the lid do you think is what caused it yes i think it was in the lid because I think down low, I think it was all good to go. So why not next time try doing what you did, but just get a new lid and put it on top? Well, I don't think I'm going to try that again next time. I mean, yes, I don't. I've never really been one to use it every single time, like switch out the mason jar. But every few times, I'll clean the mason jar before I put the grains back in and put fresh milk. But for storing kefir grains in the refrigerator, I have stored them as long as six months to a year in They've been okay. For a year time, yeah, maybe switching out the milk once or twice. But like I just have started some new grains that seem to be doing okay. Not new grains, ones that were stored in the refrigerator for six months or so. And I hadn't changed the milk on them. And they seem to be doing okay. And it's just like, it's just a nice way to have a backup in case something goes wrong. Like it sometimes does for me out of laziness or experimentation. So it's just nice having something to back up in it on the internet. You'll find different things about saying how long it can or cannot last for my anecdotal experience is that it has lasted six months to a year and still been able to be revived. One of the things that, you know, I've kind of been thinking about this kind of stuff is because I've been thinking about, like I've mentioned before, uh, kumis or a more, uh, another term for, for kumis, mare's milk, fermented mare's milk is, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but Arag, Arag, I think it's more Arag, but it's the, um, or Arag, but I was, you know, I've been trying to experiment with being able to make a cow's milk version of that, putting extra whey into fermented kefir because then it has the kefir grains and then I add some more whey and then bottle it and leave it to bubble some more. But I just, since I, this has been kind of on my mind, I've, was just listening to uh, a, a recent podcast, or I don't think it was a recent one, but a, an old one of of uh, Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. Have you ever heard of that? No, I have not. I just had a friend recently turn it, me on to that, and I've been listening to uh, a story. It's like hours and hours. Uh, like It's a podcast series of uh, episodes that talk about Genghis Khan. You know, the, you know, I guess it sounds like a very bloody ruler of sorts uh that i mean that 
crusaded and took over a lot of parts of China and different things like that. But the interesting thing, this isn't about Genghis Khan, uh, Genghis Khan and, and Kumis or Erog, but the fermented mare's milk, it's interesting to think about the people and where this would have come from. Because while mare's milk is not necessarily very popular outside of the, the steppes, it's the, the Mongolian steppes, the, it's, it's S T E P P E S. So it's, it's also the Russian steppes, kind of all that, that kind of Mongolian Russian area. It's like this deserty slash prairie plains slash. It's just like a mixture of rather flat, very few trees kind of land, you okay. know? So they've, they've got camels and different things out there too. But when, the, at some point in history, when they domesticated the horse, everything changed for the Mongols as they were referred to back then. And, um, I don't know if that's supposed to be a derogatory term or not. I think that's just what they were referred to as, but you know, the Mongols, um, you know, because I think it'd be the Mongolian people now, uh, or, or, or whatnot, but, but these were nomadic people and they relied on the horse for transportation to get across great distances, but they also relied on it for food in the sense of, um, the milk. Okay. But mare's milk is, again, has more lactose in it than cow's milk. It's sweeter than cow's milk. It works great as a laxative medicinally. The nomadic people, the Mongols, would use it as that. But they didn't drink it unfermented because they couldn't digest it. But fermented, they could. And so they tad them in these these very large um, sacks, uh, leather sacks that they would be mixing it in and, and they'd, they'd kick it. It'd be by the door, similar to kefir, but in larger things, I think, because I've seen some photos and, uh, of, of these, these big sacks, these leather sacks. And so they kick them at the door and they, they keep it stirring. And, you know, it's, and, and again, it, it can be fermented farther because, uh, Arog can be, you know, around a 2% alcohol content, whereas it has more if it's distilled and turned into a liquor. So they had, uh, you know, they, they'd make a stronger alcohol into it as well. But it's just interesting to think about where these things come from because they depended on these horses in battle. Uh, when they were going to, uh, rape and pillage different areas, they would, um, you know, have three horses with them, you know, for, per, for each person. So then they'd have food, from milk, but also they would eat the horse as meat. So that kind of connects to the whole European horse scandal right now. I mean, these are people that relied on horses, um, but they definitely weren't pets. So they, you know, they, they rode them, they ate them, they ate the milk from them. Um, there's also, you know, there might've been some cannibalism and stuff going on. So like if they're eating humans, I don't think they're going to mind eating their horses either. So I, I, it's not, that's a, it's not that far of a stretch. And again, being nomadic people, they would really eat a lot more things um, that as long as it was edible, they'd probably eat it kind of like, I'll try anything that's fermentable and edible. Like, you know, it's like, that you know, won't kill you. Well, that I, I think won't, <laughs> I mean, I guess I wouldn't know unless I died. And then, then I, <laughs> then you're screwed. Yeah. But, um, another thing that that they do for nutrition is they would like, like cut a little bit in the neck and drip it into, um, into the, the the I'm sorry, cut what neck, cut the neck of the horse. Oh, okay. They cut the neck of the horse, drip a little blood in there for substance when they like nutrition, when they, um, were out on the battlefields as well. So they bleed the horse a little bit, mix it in with their, their fermented milk, their fermented mare's milk. 
So they just get everything Does that from the actually horse. work or is that just something they thought was... No, they get some iron for sure. I, I don't know what other nutrients are coming in the blood, but yeah. But how I, much... I just... How much blood if they're not going to kill the horse? But I don't think you need that some. much. Just a little little infusion of sorts. A little <laughs> blood infusion. So all of these things are things that you could try as well, but I don't, I don't recommend no, the cannibalism or that. eating the horses. Um, it doesn't seem very politically correct right now. But... <laughs> Um, you know, I just find it interesting to think back as to where these kinds of things originated from. And this was one that was very fascinating. It's like, oh, wow, that makes sense why it was mare's milk, why it was. And, and it's still today uh, in, in Mongolia, you can go drink this in people's homes and they have their own little, um, as far as I have understood from the research that I've been doing so far is that they dry out little patties that they keep their start, a starter culture of sorts so that they have it dried as well as fresh and they perpetuate it fresh, but different families will have their own like guarded version of it because they're originally it would have started out as clabbered mare's milk. So leaving mare's milk, raw mare's milk out, it's going to clabber. It's going to sour lactic acid bacteria that are in, uh, a part of the milk are going to sour it. And they will share them with other families though. If like someone comes up to them and is like, Hey, can I get some of your, your Arog? Oh, it's it like seems a better. Flavor. Yeah, because it might be a little, a little different or, or, you know. That's kind of cool. Whereas there's been other cultures like yogurt sometimes um, has been heavily guarded. Like families would keep it separated from people. So it wasn't as much of a sharing kind of thing. But yeah, I just, I'm, this is just my continuing saga of, of looking at kumis and, and, and the new word I have for and it some is history Arog. behind it. Yeah. That's, that is interesting though. You know, I think we sometimes forget that I feel like everything has a beginning. We just don't really think about, well, how did this come about? Well, and it's really fascinating to just think about how a lot of these foods that are easy to take for granted now. Yes, kumis is not the easiest thing to get. I did find, you know, the, at least over in England somewhere. or not England. I, I, it's somewhere near the UK, somewhere in there. But they have a horse milking operation where they sell horse milk, mar- horse milk. but it's not, why do uh, it's you expensive. Think, it's, why is horse milk not popular? Well, it's expensive. Why? It's, do well, they the, not produce as, I'm They don't produce nearly as much as a, a cow. A cow. And they don't, uh, yeah, they just don't produce as much as the main reason. And, and they're, I think more expensive to keep up in general. Horses, um, probably, yeah, I don't know. And I don't know exactly. I mean, it's kind of like goat milk or different things like that. Yeah, goat milk's still, I'd say, a little bit more popular. I don't, I'd rather milk a, milk a goat than a, a, a horse, too. Well, not even milking, Maybe but... a pony, pony, pony milk. That <laughs> seems a little safer. <laughs> but a horse, I mean, they're pretty strong. Like, so are cows. Yeah, but they don't. And they kick. And, they don't move quite as the same as a horse. Well, though. yeah, they're not. I feel like they're not as sporadic. Maybe. No, I, it, it's it's kind of interesting. I, I just started thinking about. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of milk that we. There's all kinds of milk. I mean, in this there's like you you can make kumis and erog from camel's milk and and yak milk and different things as well. But mare's milk makes sense now that I realize why is that the most popular one is because well the horse was so much a part of of. The culture and still is to this day in the steps of that area, the really? prairie of that area, and you know on t- 
totally different direction. Thinking of kombucha. Um, what would you think of marijuana infused kombucha? I a company that's going to sell that. Well, I guess to me, the, the first thing I think of is kombucha is sort of caffeinated. Yeah, marijuana is a uh, a chill depressant. <laughs> yeah, how does that work? <laughs> kombucha is a. Uh, um, it's well, kind of like doing uh, well Jaeger bombs. Aren't those like the the? I we're yes we're not going to get into. The no, I'm talking about like red alcohol. And anyway, go ahead. It's not actually. It's a substance from uh, the marijuana plant is what they're what they're going to be putting into this drink. That is, as far as I can understand, selling in Canada, but they want to start selling it in the United States, or else it's just this company is originally from Canada and they want to sell this new drink here. What they want, uh, it's. CDC or CBD is the the compound. It's can I don't know how to pronounce this. Cannabidiol. <laughs> didn't realize how badly I didn't know how to pronounce that one. But uh, it's a non narcotic, so it's not a depressant. It's not going to affect a person. So then what's the point? It like, seems rather gimmicky to me. Yeah, this is I mean, they're going like, to call it cannabucha. <laughs> well, that's funny. But what, what would that even taste like? I mean, what's the? Point? I'm assuming it's probably not going to be a strong flavor. Um, I it's mean, going what to be more marketing. It seems like what? I mean, what would? I don't know what it would taste like, and it seems rather gimmicky to me. They want to begin selling it. Again, it's not being sold. This is just. Uh, I don't know how these things work for a foreign company coming in and being like, "Hey, we want to sell this product here." They would like to open up a plant in Boulder, Colorado, and also be selling it in Colorado and in Washington. Well, yeah, those two states. Two make states sense. where some. Uh, what is it? Marijuana for casual use has been yeah approved, approved or legalized or however that is technically written. Um, but yes, maybe it will be helping with relieving um, obstructive breathing disorders because that's what CBD is good for. And it's also, I mean, it's been studied since the 1980s and considered an ant for its anti-inflammatory. The, the part of marijuana. The camadibibol, the CBD. We'll just CBD. Okay. And yeah, that'd be interesting. I, I'm sure a lot of people go for it just because of what it's what it is. But yeah, I don't know. It seems gimmicky to me. But if you want marijuana well, yeah. infused kombucha, just grow some and then do it yourself. Kidding. You could do that <laughs> if you live in those two states. Well, no, you can't even grow it. If you no. you can just. I don't even know how... You're not keeping up on your marijuana news? No, no, I'm not. Because you're too busy reading about fermentation, which is good. Keep it up. Another bit of news is a kraut pouch. We've mentioned farmhouse culture sauerkrauts before. Long time ago in our sauerkraut episode. They are switching from glass containers to plastic pouches with one-way valves. At first, that seems a little disappointing. I mean, you know, I'd rather purchase things in glass, especially if it's a nice fermented sauerkraut, naturally fermented sauerkraut that's not pasteurized. You know, I like that in glass. Well, and also plastic. There's so many questionable things about plastic and what it's. Yes, there are. The nice things about it is that it, at least by their announcement of this, is that it's going to be lighter. So transportation will be cheaper and use less gas okay 
So that's one plus. Same as like boxed wines or those fancier boxed wines. That one of their arguments is that <laughs> fancier boxed that it, they're, wines. they're like you know can save a lot of uh, in transportation costs and you know well, good for the environment. So okay. those kind of things are good. And uh, they so they use less fuel to transport and they they take less energy to produce than glass too. So and they're supposedly a very the safest plastic available BPA free. Although there's the BP the other BP something or other that I was reading recently that says the replacement for BPA is not necessarily any better than BPA. Um, again, maybe it has not, neither of those in it, but the safest on the market so far, and we are inundated with plastic everywhere anyway. So, I mean, yeah. and, but it's a one-way valve. And so the only reason why this really caught my attention was because it's reminds me of coffee and coffee pouches and, and the one-way valves in those, you know, that weren't always popular before it was just coffee was left to stale before it would be canned or whatnot so that it wouldn't, release any more co2 or off gas anymore and make things explode but now so how does that sauerkraut work in a glass container well that's kind of the the some of the other issues and why they've switched to this as well is because oh, okay you have it for it's, it's you can only do it for so long before... you can only do i mean i'm sure they're not it's still not making it that much more self-stable it's just making it a little bit safer so it's not likely to explode when it's in the grocery store oh okay going back to that glass exploding i don't know how likely it is to happen but still a possibility but you're okay with that? Yes, no. Plastic? Um, I mean I it's I I would never say oh I'm not going to try it. But yeah, I think some plastic just don't appeal to me. It's probably just my um my judgments against plastic. Especially something in general. like that's got acid in it and different things like Yeah, I guess that's pro- I mean like my detergent, I don't care if that's in a <laughs> you know. Yes, but I don't talking... generally eat detergent. <laughs> well, that's not. I just. It, but I'm not, that's. I'm just trying to point out that it's not that I'm against plastics. Just all plastics around. in your kitchen. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. Especially something that's fermenting and doing. It's if it's alive in the plastic, kind of just makes me a little you know but does it make it different because it's fermented like since there is live bacteria in it? Yeah, maybe you're getting enough. Yeah. No, maybe you're getting enough goodness from it that it counteracts the. Or it could penetrate the plastic in some weird way and possibly make it worse i that's totally just me thinking that way but i mean True. but i'll eat yogurt out of a pl- i don't know i'm not sure why i'm so it's like you know yogurt sold in plastics yeah but do you eat yogurt from the store anymore well no i mean not right no but but i'm not thinking if i see it oh i wouldn't eat this because it's in a plastic container True. So it's, I'm not sure, but yeah, it's a little. So it's, it's that initial thought, but then something that's in it on a regular basis, like yogurt that you've eaten yeah. over time and. Just don't think about it. Yeah. Maybe it's different because it's like a pouch and so it's a soft plastic versus, not soft, but I mean, flexible plastic versus a little bit more rigid version. Does I that mean, make a yeah. difference? Prob- I I, yeah. I don't know. Probably. It's mindset. Because... It's just about changing it. And so that's where I guess, yeah, if, if it's just mindset, you know, but there's more lactic acid in, in sauerkraut than there is in yogurt. I don't know how I feel about this. That's another good reason to just make it yourself. Not saying don't support. I mean, they seem like good sauerkraut. Again, I've never tried it, but well, hey, um, support that over Frank's. Is it Frank's? There's different versions, many different versions of sauerkraut out there. I wouldn't say don't support Frank's. I mean, if you really like cooked sauerkraut, I mean, if you're going to put it in a recipe, I'm sure it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, that's true. And it seems like a lot of recipes out there with sauerkraut that are very good are you cook the sauerkraut. Yeah. But hey, still make it yourself. I mean, might as well. So this next topic is a little 
well, it's probiotic. It's not necessarily food, but it's just so cool that I couldn't not share it. Especially after our last podcast. Well, this is not about, it's, it's about <laughs> microorganisms. And again, microorganisms, organisms Don't worry. Being yeah, everywhere. We're not talking about poop anymore. We're done with that. Yes. We're so over fecal transplants, although they are still pretty awesome. But it's an article that I was, is based off of a TED talk that was just given, I believe, but I didn't, couldn't find the actual TED talk. Maybe it's not released yet because I think it was just TED talk season or the big TED talk this last week or something like that. But it was talking about surfaces and how surfaces create different environments for bacteria to grow and how in the future, maybe we'll be making buildings that are, that are more conducive to good bacteria and not conducive to bad bacteria. So fewer bad bacteria will grow. Hospitals seem like that'd be a good place for that to be. It's yeah. like, let's, let's actually, instead of, well, I don't know if hospital actually stepping back, it said nothing about hospitals. And now that I think about it is how sanitized hospitals are. That's probably not the first place that that's ever going to happen. <laughs> But let's say that the future of hospitals even, like, let's just take this even farther. The future of hospitals isn't about sanitation in the same sense. It's about growing good bacteria that can naturally fight off the bad bacteria that would want to spread and cause disease and different things like that. Maybe that's a little far-fetched for this because we're talking a little bit more like indoor heating and cooling, HVAC systems, where certain bacteria are more likely to grow in certain areas. And some of those areas for bad bacteria are sometimes in the HVAC system. So you're blowing bad bacteria around, which cause pathogenic issues and and spread it around. So, but it's, it's just nice. Like one of the, one of the, one of the things that she said, uh, the, the person that gave this talk was Jessica Green and she's an associate professor at the university of Oregon. And I just, it's just like, it's, it's so nice that it's so refreshing to see all of these things about, you know, it's not just germs are bad, bacteria are bad, you know, it's changing so much because she's saying getting rid of microbes is yesterday's idea. The question is how well can we colonize our surroundings with the good guys? Makes sense. Something we've always talked about. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just great to see that it's like, yes, there are many good bacteria and and it just keeps everywhere in the news popping up that, you know, bacteria are good for us. They're not just all bad. And of course, people have known this, but it's becoming much more pop culture. Bacteria are good, not just bacteria are bad. And so the, 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 the title of this article was Yogurt is Probiotic. Why not your steering wheel? And so because she's this green professor has been in touch with <laughs> green professor. Uh, Jessica Green has been in, in contact with Ford, you know, so maybe there will be a steering wheel someday. That because there's bacteria that are known to soften the, and make the skin more supple. So we're not just talking like not make you sick kind of stuff. We're talking about like, oh, maybe enhance things through microorganisms. But how, see, I get that. But how would that still work though? Because you still have to wipe things. I mean, I'm not the one saying, you, but you still have to clean the surfaces. Cleaning surfaces is fine. What are you talking about? Go ahead. I'm, go ahead with your. No, I don't have anything else to say, but what do you mean? Well, if you're going to be making things based on uh, bacteria, how do you make them and retain that bacteria? 
you're talking about wiping surfaces. I don't think they're talking about things that you're going to be cleaning on a regular basis. Like if you're talking about heating and cooling systems, I don't know how often you clean your vents. (laughs) I get your point, but I just... I guess, yeah. I mean, and I... Most surfaces aren't wiped regularly. I, I don't even know. steering wheel occasionally. Okay, occasionally is probably... We're talking about surfaces that are good for certain bacteria. And so cleaning it, sure, may wipe out the bacteria for a while, but supposedly the surfaces could still dictate what kind of bacteria are going to start to colonize there again. Oh, okay. I so guess. that's... The, I don't know any of the science behind this, and I don't know why different surfaces are more conducive to some things than others. But it's kind of fascinating. It is. Like to think about how these microbes are just going, like are, they already have so much to do with our lives, but how much more awareness we might have about that and how we can, you know, help have them. It's like, let me let me dip my dish rag into my uh, sauerkraut juice and wipe my steering wheel. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't seem be a nice air freshener though. <laughs> really? Yeah. Mm, sauerkraut juice in the morning when I get into my car. I think it would go away, but yeah. Well, a little bit of follow-up. I was talking last week about water kefir carbonation and how it seemed kind of weak. Small little teeny tiny bubbles. And so we we got an, an email from Scott who told us that he puts his water kefir for the second fermentation into a glass wine bottle. And now it wasn't specified what kind of wine bottle, but I'm assuming a screw top wine bottle because that makes most sense because you could seal that the easiest. But to put it in that, add a little bit more sugar and then ferment it there and it gets super bubbly. So much so that he says that it's really important to unscrew it every day to allow some of that gas to release. You'll still get carbonation. It will still get bubbly, but unscrew it to allow so that the um, it doesn't build up too much because the first time he tried it, it he didn't release it every day and it kind of splashed and exploded all over the walls and ceiling. So probably not the thing you want. So again, thanks to Scott, make sure you burp those wine bottles. So have you tried this? I have not tried it because I just got this email recently, but I have the most recent batch going through. Um, actually, I put it in, into a bail top, uh, like the the flip top bottles. So okay. I'm, I'm trying that way. And I'm also going to try a screw top wine bottle. But the other thing I've Are been you doing... Are you going to be putting sugar though once you pour it in as Scott recommends? Well, the thing I've been doing is with fruit. So that would give it the, the sugar as well. Um, you should try one with just sugar. Well, I, I am trying that as well. And the other thing I did that seems to be helping with bubbles as well is I've added uh, molasses to the sugar mm, water. Cannot imagine what that would taste like. You know, just a little bit of metallic iron taste like blackstrap molasses <sighs> not much it's mild it tastes you are great so bizarre you you i found recommendations for some people don't like the way it tastes but i don't mind if it's going to help the grains if it's going to help them prosper i mean hey but the whole point is for you to have an enjoyable drink yeah but again going back to i didn't necessarily like water kefir because it just tasted sweet and plain until it gets flavored with apples or whatnot i'm i'm enjoying my water kefir more i'm really working at liking water kefir and it's starting to work a little bit more i've this latest batch, I put a tablespoon of blackstrap molasses into the sugar water and then added the grains to that. You know, it makes it a little bit darker, just like if a person's using um, raw so sugars or whatnot. So that flavor going forward? It may. And there's, um, you know, I'll probably just experiment with different sugars as well. So I pretty much won't be drinking any of your water, Kiefer. Maybe not. But 
Also, I think it tastes pretty good and it's going in the second fermentation now. And thanks to Scott, I'm really sealing it because I was doing it in mason jars before. Again, not sealing them completely tight. Um, I think the, the, you know, it's just going to be tighter in these, these, these wine bottles. So we'll see. And I'll continue to update you on, on Waterkeeper and how that's working. And, and if anyone else has other things that they do other than adding molasses so that Daniela has Waterkeeper, she enjoys um, that, you know, I mean, I, I know using raw sugar or different things could be, but it, it, whoever's got really good water kefir ideas, I still really want to, I want to like this stuff. <laughs> well, and that's okay. Um, I still like my milk kefir. Oh, oh yeah. I think milk kefir is still, um, you know, it's, it's, but water kefir really is have... good though. If, you know, I think it'd be a good substitute substitute for like, soda drinks or you know yeah i would and i just so, don't, i haven't drank soda for years and well and that's why for you it doesn't really you know it doesn't matter that much but, but yeah, for no, someone who maybe enjoys that kind of just drinking it on you know during the day but doesn't want to drink the junk that's out there i think that's a great oh, alternative just definitely. how i love my ginger stuff that i am still not going anywhere with at the moment but i need to um your ginger soda well, my ginger bug died. I still haven't started a new one, even though I was supposed to. It's just been a busy week, but um, I am going to hopefully soon start it. So that yes, I mean, I enjoy drinking that randomly throughout the day. And it's- that's a good topic at some point. Talking about how to ferment all these different kinds of things in a busy life. It is life. difficult, at least for me. Again, like their pets, it's it's it's, it's a commitment. Too much work. Yeah, that's why I like my one or two things going on, and even those few that i have it, it but yeah i go through phases i mean even my kombucha it's like it takes me forever to just start a batch and i don't know why it really only takes like not that long to do but just get myself to do it i'm just it tastes so good though it does it does and it's worth it but sometimes it's just nicer to go to the store and buy something that i know is just as good especially if it's local and and we have a really madison um we have a really awesome um local kombucha company I think they, they're called Ness Alla, um, and their kombucha is delicious. A little pricey though, if you know, you're going to be drinking it well, every day. Well, not pricey compared to kombucha. No, no, just to be purchasing every day to drink. So Especially that's why. Especially inexpensive it is to make. And exactly. And so much fun to get in touch with the things that are being created in your own kitchen. Very true. Very true. Just, it's not for everyone though. Some people Definitely just not. enjoy f- fermented foods. They just don't have time to make them. So there's nothing wrong with buying it as long as it's legit hey yeah i mean i you know or or hire a housemaid or something like that to to make it for you i mean that'd probably be the other simplest way to do it (laughs) there you go and clean your house on top of that i have a little bit of sad news no it's not really sad but black garlic isn't really fermented technically So, so wait, wait. So just because it's not fermented, you're sad because well, then you're because not going to... I brought gonna... it up in our fermentation podcast but isn't and was it... calling it fermented black garlic, but, but it's not actually fermented. That's so why I feel like I have... Lied. No, I'm not lied. I didn't know. No, it's just I've been looking for pe- stuff but on But people it. are referring to it as It's black. fermented black garlic. Sure. Yes. So, but it's... It's technically not a fermentation process. You can still I've enjoy been it. looking for this. I've been looking for the info on this as to like what makes the garlic turn black. If you can't tell, when I get hooked on a few ideas like kumis, black garlic, or different things like that, I just keep you know drilling Obsessing. along and figuring out what's going on with it. 
You know, because it's just, it doesn't make sense. What makes it turn black? Exactly. Like what, you know. Okay. So what makes it turn black, Brandon? Well, it's not a microbial metabolism, as in it's not fermentation. Instead, it's an enzymatic breakdown that's creating this. But I, not, are just freshly learning about this, don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I've been reading I just, I don't know why I didn't find these people before. The Nordic Food Lab, amazing, amazing website, nordicfoodlab.org. It will be in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 13. But uh, this, this is the kind of website I like. They don't post a whole lot, but the blog post that they do put, it's a nonprofit organization of um, culinary experimentation is what it kind of seems in Norway, I believe, or somewhere in the Nordic region. And I think they're on like a, a boat or something like that. Really? Like uh, not on a boat, but on like a port or like they're on water. Like they're, they're on a like kind of boat or something. I don't know. That's what the picture on the, the thing look like. Okay. I just don't have the right words for, I'm not much of a sea voyaging kind of person to know the, the proper terms for things, but yeah, they've got great stuff on. That's a little bit more geeky scientific oriented, which I love. Um, but the, the thing that they said, so I'll just quote their words because it, it really sums it up very well. Quote, the transformation is due not to microbial metabolism, but in part to enzymatic breakdown. The heat denaturalizes the enolinase, the enzyme that converts non-volatile alanine into volatile allicin, the compound responsible for fresh garlic's pungency. And in part to the Maillard reaction, a cascade of chemical reactions that produce the dark color and complex caramelized flavor. Okay. So it's the Maillard reaction, which going back to coffee and in my days of coffee, coffee roasting, the browning of coffee, because coffee starts out green. Yes. The green bean. Maillard reaction is what browns that. I wouldn't have thought that the Maillard reaction would have been a part of that, given that it's going for four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. At 140 degrees, I didn't think that would be high enough temperature to create that browning sensation from or blackening. from that blackening. Yes, but um, other interesting things though from the Nordic Food Lab in that article that they wrote is that you can also do it with onions or shallots. They're experimenting on different things, and now they do create slightly different textures and different flavors, obviously. But they create that still that nice creamy sweetness and um. I guess black garlic goes great with fermented dairy. Why? I wonder what at one point made it, um, why people have referred to it as fermented um, garlic. Well, because it seems fermented. Because you're, I guess, it's one of those things you let it sit out in a certain temperature for so long. Yeah, and it's it's just technically not what it is. And I'm going to continue looking into it a little bit more because I find this so fascinating because even if it's not, I still want to make it at some point. Oh, oh, I was also, I was completely wrong about everything. I'll just say that. They use an Excalibur dehydrator to make it too. Wait, why did you mention, I remember us talking about this. Well, because a dehydrator is dehydrating and you have to keep these, you have to seal the moisture in. I think you said because of the... It lets the air out. Well, yeah, it circulates the air. Yes, it does. But then it also releases, like it's it's not airtight. It's meant to release. Um, so does that mean you're going to try it since you have a dehydrator? I don't know if I want to tie it up for that long. But yeah, I do want to try it. The thing that I was missing 
was that it's sealed. It's in a sealed container. So even though the dehydrator is circulating and blowing out some air and it's not airtight, the container that it's in still is. So that container stays at 140 sealed. Bingo. Makes sense. But yeah, back to that whole like fermented dairy thing, black garlic with some, what they were calling uh, the fermented dairy product Skyer, um, which is yogurt. That's almost a cheese, but not a yogurt cheese, not like a strained yogurt cheese. Although I think it is strained, um, but it's Skyer is fermented as in it's the previous yogurt is added to it, to the milk, the fresh milk at, and then it's warmed up and add, you add Renee to it, or I'm sorry, Renette to it. And which is in the cheese making process, it's the, from the animal stomach. And so then that coagulates the milk even further than any yogurt usually is. And then cut the curds, strain it like cheese. And then you have Skyer. Cool. But yeah, so you could probably do it with any other kind of fermented, especially heirloom yogurts or whatnot, but put the garlic, black garlic with that. I guess it's supposed to be a good, nice thing for breakfast or whatnot. So it's the, the description for with fermented dairy is creamy and fleshy, lactic and fruity, white and black. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> yes. So now I just need to, you know, do more research next time before I start sharing things about those. But there, I apologize. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. You're human. Yes. So I thought maybe we'd kind of start adding in some different ways to use fermented foods most likely in most episodes maybe just like it's not a tips and tricks section but it's like a recipe you know just throw out not going to read you a recipe by any means but share some different concepts about what can you do with things one of the things that is great to ferment we were talking about earlier sauerkraut it's easy to do large batches of that so sometimes it can get kind of difficult to figure out well what do i do with this sauerkraut and like you were saying a lot of times sauerkraut is cooked which yeah, is okay. And it's delicious. Tastes great. And so it made me think back to it's a rainy day today. Rainy with snow, but it's it's rainy. <laughs> and spring is trying to come. Yes, spring is is almost here in Wisconsin, but we still have plenty of snow. Wet snow now. But you know, it's a cold, frigid day. Makes me think back to a Polish hunter stew, which I made at the beginning of winter, which tasted really good. And it has a lot of sauerkraut in it. It has a lot of, you know, sorry to any of you vegan or vegetarians out there um, because it's got lots of meat in it. And I, since this is called a hunter stew, it's probably, you could make some kind of vegetarian version of it, but it wouldn't be the same. Um, this is also known as, as Bigos. You tried this recipe, yeah, correct? It, it was, it was great. Yeah, so it's a it's a stew with sauerkraut, ca- like a whole head of cabbage as well. So it's got fresh cabbage, sour cabbage, and three types of pork. Now, before it was made with a lot of times with game meats, and I actually made it with some deer in there as well. So deer and pork mixed in together. But this recipe is like close to 700 years old, supposedly. So and not this specific recipe, but the Bigos, the, the, the Polish hunter stew. Yeah, it was you know. a really good stew. You know, 
So you can use wild game or domestic meats and like many different meats, cabbage, mushrooms, and black pepper. Those are the the core things to any kind of bigos seem to be those, those there. You can add tomatoes to it. You cannot have tomatoes in it. You can have um, dates in it um, and, and different things, you know, but one thing that the recipe that's going to be in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 13 is um, it's, it's from simplerecipes.com, but it, it's really good. Has some pretty pictures in it too which makes it look really appetizing. But they specifically said, if you're going to use sauerkraut and you're going to use vinegar, like stuff that's canned or whatnot, like it, um, or vinegared, it's, you know, it's going to be, you're going to want to wash that vinegar off. And so it was actually recommending using a naturally fermented non-pasteurized bubbies, which just recently had you try, which I hadn't tried for uh, pickles, not sauerkraut, but bubbies, pickles. Okay. um, From the refrigerated section. There were actually some good, decent pickles. Um, the best store-bought pickles I've had. I mean, I I haven't been to a, you know, like... Well, the best part about them is that um, I think a lot of pickles, and I think a lot of people probably like this, is the crunchiness. They're still but, crunchy. But fermented pickles that are actually fermented, they're crunchy, but not as crunchy. They're not soggy or anything like that. It's just that perfect in-between that I love and and of course the delicious garlic taste and 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 smell and and flavor is just um yeah very good pickles yeah and so i i I mean yeah if you don't mind spending seven eight dollars for a jar of pickles which makes sense because you know pickles naturally fermented pickles are way more expensive to produce just trying trying them to compare yeah, I mean, or if you're having troubles making naturally fermented pickles, it might be worth trying some that are naturally fermented as opposed to vinegared. True. So, and, you, so um, the, there's a comparison at because least. Because pickles are kind of tough. So, but back to this Bigo stuff, this this Polish hunter stew, um, it's it's better the longer it cooks. So go to that recipe if you're interested in adding some some sauerkraut to a nice stew. It's It's, it's so good. The only thing I didn't agree with on the recipe was that it says it improves with age. I'd say it really Maybe I just made too big of a batch and I was eating it too much. <laughs> but Possible. it it by after a, a couple of days of it, I was kind of tired of it, and I wouldn't say that it necessarily tasted better. Yeah, I was almost if excited you're eating to t- something every day. Of course, you'd be tired of it. But I eat fermented foods every day, and I'm not tired of them. That's different. They're not your main meal. Usually, I'm assuming you're eating them on the side. You're not eating yogurt for every meal every day, are you? I have a lot of yogurt, but no, not yeah, that. Yeah, it's not your main dish, so that makes a big difference. A lot of yogurt, the most lot of, delicious lot of thing. I mean, kimchi. I love chocolate, but too much also chocolate. Also fermented. Too much chocolate, it's 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 not going to be good after a while. Well, something that is good is the Good Food Festival. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Next weekend, if you're in the Chicago area. Check it out. And it's not very expensive either. Yeah, it's uh, goodfoodfestivals.com. Again, that will be in the show notes. But What dates are? is it specifically? Uh, the food festival is on Saturday, March 16th. And, uh, you know, it, it, it looks really cool. Just decided last minute that we are, you know, Firm Up's going to be down there. I mean, we're just going and we're not there or, or putting up an exhibit or anything like that. But um, we're just going to attend because there's a lot of fun fermentation workshops. Sander Katz is teaching a three-hour workshop. You know, the... Uh, you know, author of 
his most recent book, The Art of Fermentation. So that'd be, if you really want an introduction to fermented foods, you know, I've, I've been to one of his shorter workshops and, and also watched his DVD workshop. Um, you know, great place to learn, ask questions. And, you know, if you're in the area, it's, it's worth, you know, seeing Sander, Sander cats. Um, you know, but there's going to be fermentation wise, there's other stuff like ferment, like farming and, and our, should I get a CSA? I mean, a lot of things are just about real food movement in general, but other fermentation related workshops are cheese making and kombucha brewing and, and sausage hanging. It's there's that's I'm interested to go hopefully take a lot of pictures, write about it. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about it next podcast. Um, there's will. also a kimchi challenge where local Chicago chefs will be fighting it out against each other in a contest of kimchi. Does and the again, public there's... get to try the kimchi? What's that? Does the public? I don't know if the public does, but it's judged. Sander Katz is one of the judges, I, th- I believe, and and I don't know what the other panel of judges will be. But, you know, little, you know, how popular those judging shows, competition yeah, shows are on television. Um, you know, there's other things going on on Thursday or Friday as well, but um, look look Saturday. at it. But the, the festival is the day of the workshops and... Uh, there's even an urban farm tour if that's of interest, but looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, again, just decided last minute to to try it out, but be cool. And next week, I believe we're going to focus on botulism. We'll talk about other things, and this is fermentation related because it often comes up. If you've ever talked about fermenting with other people's, maybe you even had someone kind of be like, oh, but what about botulism? Why am I not scared of this? I'm not scared of it either. You kind of grew up with people fermenting things, though. That doesn't count. I didn't, however, grow up with people fermenting things. I guess. And I've never been afraid of it. I don't know why. Because then, like, uh, some people, there's a real fear. And if you're listening to this and you have a fear of, like, you're, you want to ferment some things or you're okay fermenting, like, a certain, like, vegetable Food. or yogurt or whatnot, but not another thing. Like, for myself, like, not a fear, but I wouldn't be ready to start I have not fermented any meats. I'm not afraid of fermenting meats. I just really want to know what I'm doing before I start that. It doesn't seem as much of something, um, you know, still perfectly safe to do, I'm sure. And and, and but I feel like with meats, that's the easiest thing to do because you could probably easily tell if something's not smoked or fermented. Like a, a meat is just going to have a rotten smell. No, I think you can have some pathogenic really? bacteria that will grow in See, something that yeah. would still be edible. Maybe I'm just not knowledgeable so that I just don't. That's why I haven't made it. But it's not a fear. It's just a, a lack of knowledge. And I, it's not what I focused on. I've never focused on and you know, I've been fermenting for like four or five years and it's just not been. There's so many other things to ferment. So it hasn't been the first thing. I'm going to do this sausage making workshop. And so maybe I'll start. I'm assuming it's a, a fermentation workshop. I guess it could be another kind of sausage making. But, um, you know. I would really love to start fermenting some meats and um, so that will be in in the future as well. But next week, again, looking kind of at the fears of fermentation, like botulism being the main thing that we will just kind of, kind of just approach all those kind of things. And and hopefully we'll have another recipe or something for you as well. That would be exciting. And we might talk about poop. No, I'm just kidding. That was just trying to get you to listen to the next episode too. So if you're looking for show notes again they're at firmup.com slash podcast slash 13 and you can email us at podcast at firmup.com and you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash firmup or twitter we're at firmup you can find us anywhere 
and everywhere talking about anything and everything fermented. See you next week.